So if you're new to Redemption Church or if you're coming back for a second time after Easter service, what we do here at Redemption Church is we pick a book of the Bible and we preach through it verse by verse. And the reason that I say that, especially for today, is that today's sermon is not one of those sermons you preach necessarily for retention. It is, it is the Word of God, though, and we're not going to stray away from what the Word of God says. So we're in a difficult passage to accept as believers today, but nonetheless, we're going to bring the Word boldly. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8 in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind us if you did not bring a Bible or if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, but I would encourage you to bring one or put the app onto your phone. Uh, as you turn there, let me also say, as a parent, um, this sermon is going to use some terminology you may not want to define to your children. So if there's any kids in here, you may want to utilize kids' ministry today. Um, but I just kind of want to give the disclaimer uh, so you know what you're in for. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 reads like this. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we encourage and or we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you were doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress and against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we previously told you and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So if you were part of our Bible study, you might notice the word right in the beginning, additionally. It actually says two words, additionally, then. So that tells us that this scripture is in addition to uh, a context that has been brought prior. And since that was two weeks ago, Sean Fenner brought that message. I want to read the last two verses. Now, Paul was ending this these verses in prayer to the Thessalonians. So let me read that so we can kind of get back into the mindset since Easter kind of uh, took us away from it for a second. It says, uh, starting in uh, verse 12 of chapter 3, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. So that's how Paul ends uh, his prayer, and that's the context that we're coming into our scripture today. Paul wants them, through Christ, to have overflowing love for one another, and that their hearts, through Christ, would be blameless in holiness before God when Jesus returns. So Paul here has a perspective that the Thessalonians do not have he has a perspective of being on the outside looking in. And I think we've all been there before. We've been on both sides of that equation before, and um, sometimes it's difficult. 
But it's also important to remember that people who are on the outside typically have a different perspective of what's going on in our lives. They can speak truth to us. They can see things that we may not see in ourselves. And it's important to remember when that happens, it doesn't matter how good we're doing something in our own mind, somebody might be seeing something totally different from the outside looking in, which is the title of this message this morning. And this is where Paul's at right now. He's on the outside looking in at the Thessalonians. He knows that they have accepted Christ and they changed how they were once living, but our walk with God does not end at accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It has only just begun. So Paul is going to encourage and he's going to ask them, which brings us to our first fill-in-the-blank point if you received the handout on the way in. It's leaders can ask and encourage obedience, but you're the one who has to live it and please God. You could even add at the end there, no matter how well we think we're doing. Verse 1 and 2. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. It's important to to notice how Paul starts this. How is he encouraging them? In Jesus Christ? No, he's, he's, he's using the title of Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. This is significant because this request may be coming from Paul's hand in a letter, but it's really coming from Lord Jesus. And when you accept Jesus Christ as Savior of your life, then you've made him Lord over your life. You've relinquished control of your own life and said, Jesus, I am now yours. I'm handing my life over to you. You are now the ruler and the king of my life. He is Lord. Not only are these instructions based on the Lord Jesus' commands, it's also up to them to follow them and to please God. The result of living it out. And this is really interesting to me because I have a critical mind that flips everything into the negative. And what I mean by that is if you flip that whole statement in reverse, to not live life in obedience would mean what? You're displeasing God. Now this, is, this is not contrary to the idea of once saved, always saved, because as a true believer, our union with Christ is an established fact. And our union is not in jeopardy, per se, but our communion with God is. We can certainly experience the frown of God in our lives. We can experience his silence in our lives. We can experience a lack of feeling of the Holy Spirit. We can definitely and most certainly feel the discipline of the Lord in our lives. And let us remember, he disciplines those whom he loves. But as believers, we don't 
we don't like to think like this, that we can actually displease God. We only want to think about the sins that we've conquered in our life and the things that we've done that please God and that other people see in us pleasing God. And this is the great illusion of our own pride. When we have overcome these strongholds in our lives, we rationalize how we are so much better than we once were. And when we do that, when we look, at, when we look back in our past and say, look at all these things that through God's grace that I have conquered and I no longer do, we lose all motivation to continue killing our sin in our lives. It's been said like this. If you're not constantly killing your sin, then your sin is killing you. That's the reality. 1 Peter 1.15 says this. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. All of your conduct, you are called to be holy. You're called to be separate. There's the standard that is set because your Lord and Savior, the one you proclaim Lord over your life is holy. You too must be holy. Now the reality is, is we can never fully achieve this. If we did, we wouldn't have needed Jesus Christ to come and, and die on the cross for our sinfulness. And because of our sinful mortal bodies, we can't achieve it. But holiness is not merely adhering to some type of middle class family value system where you don't do X, Y, and Z, but rather you, you put those away and you do A, B, and C, and now, boom, I am holy and I am sanctified. I've made it. Thank you, God. Rather, holiness is a result of lifelong obedience and sanctification being transformed into the image of the Son. Are you being transformed into the image of the Son? This, this, this leads us to our next point. God's will. What is God's will for your life? Sanctification. God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified. Verse 3. For this is God's will. Your sanctification. I didn't have to think very hard on this one. It says it pretty plainly there. God's will is sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Have you ever thought about, you know, what's God's will for my life? Have you ever been so lost in direction? You know, wondering what to do next. What's God's will for my life? I don't know which way to go. One way to discern that is to actually try out what his will is for your life. Sanctification. Be in your Bible. Learn his commands so you can follow and obey his commands. 
so that you become sanctified more into the image of Christ. You're being transformed. And with that transformation comes an insight into God's will for your life because you are now more in line with his beloved son. Now, is sanctification is the only command that we need to follow based on this scripture to abstain from sexual immorality? No. The Bible's full of commands. Jesus gives many commands. And those who love him, he says, obey my commands. There's more than just this one command. But why then is Paul bringing to the forefront sexual immorality? That's the question that we need to answer. And I think the reason is, is they live in a pagan culture. Sex in all of its imaginable forms, everything that you can think of, was considered an act of worship among the Greek gods. We know the Corinthians had a, a temple that served the goddess of sex, served by 1,000 prostitutes. They lived in a culture of sex. It was everywhere. It was socially normal. It was looked down upon if you weren't participating in it because it was contrary to their worship system. Set apart. Made holy. You're not doing that. It causes commotion. Now there's no doubt that many Thessalonians participated in sexual immorality as non-believers and possibly have scaled it back but maybe they haven't killed it entirely. That's why Paul's highlighting sexual immorality here. He has a perspective outside looking in. He says, keep doing what you're doing, but do it all the more. And I think we know, and they knew, and Paul knew, that the power of sexual sin is addictive and strong. Sexual pleasure is the greatest gift God has given between two people, and yet it's being shared in this culture with everyone and anyone. Sound like a familiar culture? No, we might not have a temple to a sex god, per se, with a thousand prostitutes. But what we do have is Las Vegas, Nevada. Listen to, I stopped real quick after I found these, these stats, but these stats are old. 2013, Nevada estimates there are more than 30,000 prostitutes working illegally, servicing nearly 400,000 clients a year. By the way, that's only the illegal prostitution. That doesn't touch the multi-million dollar industry of legal brothels in Las Vegas. That doesn't even touch that number. What is that number? Suddenly, when we look at our own culture, 
thousand prostitutes serving a Greek goddess is child's play. That's one state in this country. But you know who Paul isn't talking to in this letter? He's not talking to the world. Paul, I, you, expects this behavior from the world. And I'm not here this morning to change the world. I can't. Paul can't change the world and what they're doing. Christ can. But he's also writing a letter to believers who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I'm here with people who proclaim Lord Jesus as king of their life. So the question is, is how has sexual immorality infiltrated the church? Well, it's filled with things nobody wants to talk about because it makes us uncomfortable. And I am going to make us feel uncomfortable a little bit. So how has, sexually, how has sexual immorality infiltrated the church? Well, there's addiction to porn. There's going to the internet to feed every fleshly desire that our minds can concoct. Any fleshly fetish that you want, it is a few finger swipes or mouse clicks away, and you can get whatever you want, whatever fantasy our sick, sick minds concoct. We can go and self-pleasure and do whatever we want on the internet, and nobody knows. There's infidelity in the marriage. And somehow that infidelity can stay hidden year after year after year. And it stays secret. Business trips are planned to, to seek out their, their lovers and, and to meet secretly and to continue that re re relationship on an ongoing basis. There are multiple sexual partners before marriage cheapening the gift of sex between a husband and a wife that's prevalent in our culture that's the social norm of our culture there's the rationalization among Christians of premarital fornication as if it's not sex and then we justify it so that we can still have pleasure with who we might be dating. There are Christian parents letting their children's boyfriends and girlfriends sleep over their houses and wondering how did they get pregnant? I can't believe they're having sex. You put a boy and a girl in a room overnight, that's what's going to eventually happen. You can only hold burning coals in your lap for so long before you get burnt. They're unmarried couples playing house together, living life as if they were married, never making a vow to God himself in marriage. Is everyone uncomfortable yet? 
I'm not done. What about the current mainstream pressures to accept and normalize sexual perversions that go against and are contrary to the word of God? And if you don't normalize it, church, you are a bigot and you hate everyone. Welcome to church 2022. But the reality is, the church was meant to always be separate, holy, separated from the world, period. We're supposed to look different than the world. And how does Paul advise the Thessalonians to combat sexual immorality? Self-control. No one can carry out self-control except you. No matter who or what you blame your lack of self-control on, it is your control, your, it's yourself that you have to control. Now, are there medical exceptions to this? Absolutely, but I'm not going there because more often than not, it just gives us an out and it gives us an avenue to point to something else instead of pointing at ourselves and saying, actually, this is my problem. And what do we do when we can't control our bodies? What's our typical response as sinners? We normalize the sin. We lie to ourselves. We say, what I'm actually doing isn't that bad. In fact, it's so hard to stop doing. I'm going to give myself grace to continue in sin because I'm a believer. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I know that Christ died for my sins. And I'm going to lean on his forgiveness so that I can continue in my own temporary pleasure at the cost of re-crucifying Jesus Christ time and time and time again, cheapening his grace, nullifying the work of the cross in my own life because of my lack of control. That's a really, if that's your mindset, and if that's what, that's what we do in sin. That's a really, really scary place to be as in a believer. And I'm lovingly urging you and telling you, you are not walking with God. You don't look separate from the world. You look like the world. You are the world. Or as Paul says, you look like a Gentile who does not love God. A.W. Tozer has a quote that sums this up pretty well. He says, common sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it namely the gospel, makes no difference to God either. And it is an easily observable fact 
that for countless numbers of persons, the change from no faith to faith actually makes no difference in the life. That's a real problem. As a pastor, I don't want that for you or the congregation. So let me try to illustrate this in a way that is maybe less preaching and more teaching. But I'm going to share my screen. Maybe. There we go. Walking with God. I'm a visual learner. I don't like to read. So anytime that I can kind of concoct some type of image in my head, it sticks. So maybe this will be helpful for you. Maybe it won't. But this is my feeble attempt. Why do we walk with God? Galatians 2.20 says that I've been crucified with Christ. It's I who no longer lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why we walk with God. We're not our own anymore. If you've given yourself to Christ, then he is ruler of your life. So here we go. If we could place our walk on a continuum, that's what this is. And we have Jesus who came and lived perfectly it's a perfectly straight line, okay? Through his cross, through this death, burial, and resurrection, he has done what? He has provided a path to eternal life. And let us remember that that path is narrow. That path is narrow. Now let's identify a couple other places on here. If this is the narrow path that leads to eternal life, then... This is eternal death, the gray. Or it could be called the world or worldly living. So Jesus comes and he sets the standard for our life on how to live. And 1 John 2, 6 says what? The one who says he remains in him should walk just as Jesus has walked. Now we can't live like Jesus lived or we wouldn't need Jesus. But that's the bar that has been set. Jesus' life. But since we can't walk like Jesus walks because we're in our sinful flesh, we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the yellow area. And through the Holy Spirit, we can walk. We can walk in life. And the flesh that we live in, we have now power to overcome fleshly desires. Galatians 5.16 says... Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out desires of the flesh. But we also have guardrails, which are the red. And what are the guardrails that the Spirit gives us? Well, the Spirit can convict us. We have the Word to obey. And we have godly counsel. 
We have a different perspective, like Paul's offering the Thessalonians right now. Outside, looking in. We have people that should be speaking into our lives saying, you're not really living it right now. That's our call as believers to speak truth and admonish other believers. So we try our best through the power of the Spirit to walk as Jesus walked through that narrow gate. So we have us out here at one point. Let's see here. One. Walking in the world. And then what happens? We're destined for death, eternal death. But by God's grace, we have heard the gospel message that takes us, transforms us, and brings us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And our walk with God now begins. And what that walk looks like is typically like this. We come into a saving relationship, and we come in here like this. And we hit, a, we hit a guardrail and we come back and be sanctified back into the image. And, then, and, the, and the hope is that as we live our life, this would look like this. And we get closer and closer and it's sanctified to the end. Closer, made into the image of Christ throughout our entire life. Now the problem is, is sometimes we do this. And what this is, is disobedience. We have now disobeyed conviction that the Spirit has placed in our life. We have disobeyed the Word. We were not, we're not obeying any of the commands of Jesus at this point. And we are now refuting any wise counsel in our lives to correct us and bring us back into a closer communion with God. So we are now in disobedience. So, for the believer, we have a, we have a choice here. We have a choice. And 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, if we're out here and we lie to ourselves and say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's choice number two. We can either, choice number one, we can continue in our sin and ignore it all. Choice number two, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So we have a choice as a believer. We have a choice to think we repent, but never repent, and just actually head to eternal death. And the question with that, because some of you are thinking, well, where's my security in my salvation? The question you need to ask yourself, did this transformation actually ever happen? Has your life been so radically changed to bring repentance in this situation 
Because if you continue in sin, the truth is not in you, and the word is not in you. You see why this is a very scary place to be? Or, the better of the two options, repentance. As a believer, we can repent. Now, if you notice, that line is directly straight back up into communion with God. Because repentance is a 180 degree turn away from what you were doing back to walking with God. That's repentance. It's a conscious decision to stop it. And what happens through repentance? Well, to bring about repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. Godly grief. If the gospel has transformed your life, this instance will produce godly grief. You will tell yourself, I am in sin. I am sinning against the Lord and Savior of my life. The one who died on the cross. How in the world can I continue in this sin and make his grace cheap in my life for what I'm doing? Godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief, it says, produces death. I can't give it up. I just can't give it up. I know what you've done for me, but I can't give it up. I, I love the world too much. And you might feel sorry, but you're not willing to turn away from it, and you're not willing to stop it. And those can lead in a very bad path. So we want repentance. And God is faithful, it says in 1 John. Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. So the question is, how can we determine where we're at? Right? And are, are you walking in the spirit, heading on the narrow path to eternal life? Or are you walking with the world? There's many lists in the Bible that are given about what it looks like to live in the world. We're going to do one. Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Here's a familiar one. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and Paul sums it all up, and anything similar. The word is written on our heart. We know what is right and what's wrong. That's why Paul sums it up at the end. If it's anything that's counter, not like Christ-like, then you're living like the world. So that's a good way to examine our lives. Are we partaking in any of these worldly, fleshly pleasures? Another way to determine if you're, what, where you're at on this chart would be John 15, 19, which says... When we're walking in the spirit, the world will hate you. This is a great litmus test. The way I'm living my lifestyle, does the world love me or does the world hate me? Because when you're in the world, 
you are of the world and the world loves you. It's a great litmus test. And there's one more. When you're walking in the Spirit, you will display fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking outside of the Spirit, you're going to be lacking fruit in your life. So the question is, one, hopefully this was helpful. <laughs> Two, where are you at on this chart? As a, as a professing believer, where are you at? Are you walking and being sanctified into the image of Christ? If you are, let me encourage you. Keep running that race until the end. That's what we're called to do. Run that race with endurance. Kill your sin and can continue killing your sin. But I would also add, be one of those people on the outside looking in and help your brother and, or sister that may not be walking in the Spirit so that they can find how to do that with your example of your life. That's what we're called to do as believers. Help each other out. Maybe you found yourself here. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I've never actually received the gospel in my life. Because receiving the gospel means you have placed Jesus Lord over your life. And if that's you today, we're going to have a time later in the service that we can correct that relationship. Or three, you're a professing believer and you're ending up down here today. And let me tell you, today is this line. Today is that choice to get back into communion with God. Because what happens out here, this is unrighteousness. What happens when you're in the worldly realm? More than often than not, if you continue there, it's evidence that you are not converted and you are not saved. And you are under the Lord's wrath and you are partaking in unrighteous acts. Which leads us to our next point. The Lord is the avenger of all unrighteousness. The Lord is an avenger of all unrighteousness, especially towards his body. Verse 6. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Paul's now addressing the heart of the issue. Sexual immorality was being committed between members of this church. He is pleading with them to stop. Because you know, Thessalonians, who avenges unrighteousness and the Lord's returning. There's an urgency here. The Lord will. The Lord will avenge it. He does not want them to be 
uh, ignorant or ignore the severity of sexual sin, which ultimately points to the rejection of God. Romans 1, verses 16 through 18. Familiar first part of the verse, but let's remember 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For, it is, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Are you a professing Christian suppressing the truth through your blatant unrighteous lifestyle? You have to ask yourself, have I actually given my life over to Christ and allowed the Holy Spirit to infiltrate my heart, to radically change my life? Because I'll tell you, unrighteousness is not on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. That is your flesh. And let us not confuse and equate all sin as being equal. When we do that, we tend to normalize the range of sin. And when we say things like that, we, we typically mean it like this, like we're all sinners apart from Christ. And that's true. Whether you, you stole a pencil in grade school or you murdered somebody, we're all apart from Christ. And we need Christ in our life to save us and bring us to salvation. And that's true. But it's also true that stealing a pencil is a little bit different than murdering somebody in the image of God. If that's so plain to us, let us not be so arrogant to think that God doesn't see it the same way. And the same goes for the severity of sexual immorality. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Turn away and run. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. We need to get that into our heads. For you were bought at a price, a price we couldn't afford. So glorify God with your body. Sexual sin is not external. It's internal to our body. It's against the holy temple of the living God. If we went to a place to worship, the temple, if we went to a physical location, would you defile it? 
would you walk into that temple, pull out your phone, and start looking at pornographic images? Would you graffiti slanderous things on the wall of the temple? Would you take your lover to that temple to commit adultery? Well, I have news for you. The temple is now inside of every single believer. The Holy Spirit dwells in your body. So glorify God with your body. Fred preached on this on Easter. Romans 6, use your bodies as weapons of righteousness. Why? Because you've been bought at a price. And that price was Jesus Christ. And any time you sexually sin, or any time you sin in anything, you're spitting in the face of Jesus, saying, thanks for my salvation, but I'm really not willing to follow you on this issue. I, and, and I will carry out my life the way that I want to. But that's not God's will for your life. That's not what, what it's like to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's not sanctification. And that's not saving faith. When you disobey his commands, you're not disobeying my commands. You're disobeying God's commands. Which leads us to our final point this morning. No matter how you respond... You will answer to God, not man. Verse 8 says, consequently, consequently, in summation of everything that I've just told you in context of chapter 3 and all 1 through 8 of 4, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I can stand up here I can ask, I can urge, I can encourage you to flee from your sin, whatever it may be, whatever's predominant in your life. I can warn you that you're on a path of destruction, but you're the one who has to do the changing. You're the one who has to have self-control and deny your own flesh. No one can do it for you. But the good news is, is the power of the Spirit is in you to overcome the flesh. Galatians, what a crazy picture of that our flesh and our spirit as believers war with one another. A constant battle. Paul says, my flesh does things I don't want it to. But the power is in you. We, as the church, will walk beside you, help you in any way that we can, point you to resources, but you have to ask for help. We cover up our sin, bring it to the light, and get help. Your response to God's word today ultimately rests on your own shoulders. We all have to answer for what we've done in this life. You will answer to a God 
who controls both eternal life and eternal death. Let's end with this. 1 Corinthians 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived, Paul says. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty in 11. And some of you used to be this way. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There were some people in Corinthians that acted this way. There's some people here today that acted this way, guilty. But when you hit the brick wall that is called Jesus Christ and you turn away from your sin, you will be washed. You will be sanctified into the image of Christ. You will be justified. The debt of all your sins no longer stands on your shoulders but they were placed on your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, you have eternal life and salvation. That's the good news of the gospel.